It is a great day. It has already been a wonderful service. Your singing has been excellent. I have just been enjoying it from the front here, choir. Thank you. That was beautiful. Rick, thank you for all that you do. And uh, I just want to say what an honor it is to stand here. Pastor Robert, thank you for allowing me the opportunity to fill the pulpit today. I pray that as we dive into the Word in just a moment, that it will be impactful both for you graduates, but also for each of us in here. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time that we can come and celebrate what is happening in the lives of these students, but also a time where we can come and celebrate what is happening in our lives because of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, may this be a moment that we are able to sense your presence. Speak to us loudly, clearly. Convict us, Father. Call us to repentance. Show your grace over all of us. And in this moment, Father, I pray that you would hide me behind your cross and speak your words. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. This morning, there's something that I, I know is true about each of us. It's particularly true about our graduates as they prepare to go off on a new journey, but it's also true for every one of us in this room, whether we're graduating whether we're still in middle school or high school, whether we're first-time parents, first-time grandparents, retired. It is true of us that no matter where we are in our life stage, the Lord wants to use us far beyond what we could ever imagine. It doesn't matter where we are, the Lord has plans for us that are bigger than anything we could ever think of. And unfortunately, far too often we miss it. Unfortunately for us, far too often we miss it. We let things creep into our life that distract us and that point us away, and we end up missing what the Lord has planned for us. And so this morning, I want to take just a few moments, and I want to talk about one specific thing in our life that distracts us and calls us away from the gospel and from Christ. And that is our appetites. Now, I'm not just talking about food. I know what time it is. I know your clock in your stomach is ticking. But I'm not just talking about food. I'm talking about our appetite, the cravings in our life, the appetites that are in our lives that call us to do things. Some good, some positive. Some maybe not. And so that we're all on the same page, I want to list just a few of these appetites for you this morning. And we're going to start, they're going to come up on the screen, and we're going to start with a few, because there's an appetite that we have for progress. I mean, isn't there? There's an appetite we have for progress. We see this a lot when we're driving. Lots of different ways. One way is we have an appetite when you're coming down I-20, and I-20 is just not big enough right there before Clemson Road. And we think, if only they would six-lane this thing. And we just have this desire, this appetite to six-lane it. And then it begins to happen. And we start wondering, whose dumb idea was this anyway? When is this going to be finished? 
Why are they doing this? But we have this appetite for progress. We want it to be better. We want, we want to progress. We have an appetite for responsibility. You see this manifest a lot in teenagers. As they're coming to adolescence, they want more independence. They want more responsibility. Might not want all the consequences that comes from it, but they want the benefits. We have an appetite for responsibility. We have an appetite for respect. We don't want to be disrespected. We want to be highly regarded, highly respected. We have an appetite to win at all costs. You see this in great length in professional sports right now. With every major professional sport at some level having some sort of scandal. With athletes going beyond the rules so that they can be better. Have a better chance of winning. Because we have an appetite to win. We have an appetite to be loved. Appetite to be accepted. We want to feel a part. We want to do whatever it takes. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. We have an appetite for fame. Have an appetite for recognition. We want our due. We want our due, don't we? We want to be recognized for that accomplishment, for, for that thing over there, for who we are. We want to be recognized rightfully in that. We have an appetite to be envied. I mean, we want people to say, I want to be like them. I want to be like him. I want to be like her. I want to drive that car because they're driving it. I want to wear that because they're wearing it. And then we have an appetite for stuff. I mean, we've got a big appetite for stuff. We've got a two-car garage at home, and our cars sit outside. And we've got a storage unit down the road. Full. Because we've got an appetite for stuff, because there's something about our appetites. It doesn't matter what appetite you struggle with. It always wants more, doesn't it? It always wants more, because you see, an appetite has three things that we need to understand before we dive into this message this morning. The first thing about appetite is that God created it and sin distorted it. Appetites in and of themselves aren't bad. God created that appetite in us to be loved, to be accepted, because he wanted us to come to him. But sin has distorted and perverted it and twisted it in ways that it was never, never meant to be. God created it, sin distorted it. But also... Appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. There's no clearer picture for me than uh, the day after Thanksgiving. I mean, right? I mean, I don't know how Thanksgiving works in your household, but in my household, Thanksgiving, we all gather together at one house and we all have the trimmings. And the trimmings in my household is, you know, probably consistent in a normal year of ham, turkey, barbecue turkey, maybe some fried turkey, lots of turkey in all different ways, casseroles galore, you need two plates to fill it up, then comes the dessert time, to which my mother has frozen cakes for the year and she's saved them up, and so the coconut cake comes, I know lunch is almost here, I'll stop, okay. (laughs) But you know what's never happened to me? The Friday morning after Thanksgiving, I have never woken up and gone, you know, I ate so much yesterday, I think I'm full for the rest of the day. That has never happened to me. 
Because our appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. It doesn't matter what realm it's in. It always wants more. And then thirdly, our appetites always whisper now and never later. They entice us to trade the ultimate for the temporary. To trade what's best for the pleasure of right now. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 25. In this story, in Genesis chapter 25, we see just a dynamic picture of our appetite and what's happening here. This is the story, if you've been around church for for a while, you'll know this story, it'll be familiar to you. If you haven't been, the story's just going to sound crazy to you. You're going to think that this person has lost his mind. It's the story of Jacob and Esau. I mentioned to you uh, a while ago, we had a set of twins graduating. And what I love about Hope and Leslie is that while they're twins, they are nothing alike. I mean, they're sweet, okay? But they've got different likes. They've got different personalities, but they're twins. Well, in this story of Jacob and Esau, it's the same way. They are twins, but they couldn't be farther from the same. Jacob is a mama's boy. Likes to stay at home. He likes to cook. He wants to be inside. Esau is a man's man. He's a warrior. He's working in the fields. The Bible describes him as being very hairy. I mean, different. Opposite ends of the spectrum. Esau is the oldest by just a little bit. If you're curious, you should go back and read that story because that's pretty crazy. By just a little bit, Esau is the oldest. And in in their day, something different happened than in our day. Because in their day, there was this idea of birthright. And the oldest son at the death of the father, or as the father was nearing death, the father would bestow upon that oldest son the birthright. And the birthright was very important because the birthright meant some significant things. First, it meant that that oldest son, the son with the birthright, would get a double portion of the inheritance. So he would automatically be the wealthiest sibling in the house by double. Automatically. Wealth. Also with the birthright came this idea that in family matters, whenever the family was having issues and they needed somebody there, the oldest, the one with the birthright, would become the judge. So you would go to him and you would lay out your case before him and he would have the authority. So there came wealth and there came power and then thirdly there came this sense of multi-generational blessing. That the one with the birthright would be blessed for generations to come. They were already blessed with wealth and power, but it would follow their lineage for generations. And here's where the tension is. Jacob wanted the birthright. But Jacob was the youngest. It didn't belong to him. It wasn't his to have. It was Esau's. And so we pick up this passage in Genesis chapter 25, verses 29. So where this story begins, short little story with huge significance for us today. The writer begins this way in verse 29. He says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, told you he liked to cook, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. 
Other translations say he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Here's Esau coming into the house and his appetites creeping in. He's been outside all day. I'm sure he was exhausted. I'm sure he was famished. He's been hunting. He's been working in the field. He's been doing something out there. He comes in. It smells good. He sits down at the table. If you've got a teenage boy or maybe even a teenage girl, this should be very familiar. Sits down. You can just imagine just plopping down right there. I need some of that stew and I need it now. Jacob, being a younger sibling, knew something in this moment. You see, I don't know what your family dynamic is, what your family makeup is. I'm the oldest, and I have a sister. She's six years younger than I am. Anne and I have two kids. Betsy's the oldest. She's 18 months older than Will. And there's something that I've experienced and that I've seen in working with students as well. Very rarely does the oldest sibling need something from the younger sibling. I mean, very rarely does that happen. The older one does not need something from the younger one very rarely, but the younger sibling always wants what the older one has. I remember when I was 16 and I got my driver's license and I had a car. Remember I told you my sister was six years younger than I am. I got to be careful. She's here today. She was 10. She wanted a car. Didn't understand why she couldn't have one. I had one. Why couldn't she? Betsy and Will. Betsy loves to play with Barbies. Will loves to play with tractors. I love it. It's appropriate. But when Betsy is playing with Barbies and having fun with Barbies, Will wants a Barbie. He's already imagined how that Barbie is going to ride on the tractor and how we're going to put him in the trailer or something. He's going to do something with that Barbie. Might take his nights and play, I'm not sure, but he wants that Barbie. And a side of will will come out that you don't know, I mean, to get it. The younger sibling always wants what the older one does, but the older one rarely needs anything from the younger one. And so when that happens, a smart younger sibling begins to negotiate. Doesn't happen often, they know that, so they begin to negotiate. One time we were on our way to Clemson, that's what we do, we would go to Clemson growing up, we were riding in our van, and this was way back before uh, Xboxes and Playstations, and it was right when Nintendo Game Boys had come out, the black and white ones, not the color ones now that do all the fancy stuff. It was my pride and joy. And my sister had something, and to be honest, my memory has left me, so I used a little uh, um, preacher... um, um, Whatever the word that left me to right here. I know it was a food. I'm pretending it was a candy necklace because that would fit appropriately. And she had it. And I wanted it. And I asked her, can I have some of your candy necklace? And she said, nope. She said, I tell you what, you can have one piece of my candy necklace if I can have your Nintendo for the ride up to Clemson. I said, no, I'm not trading my Nintendo for one piece of candy. I'll give you the whole candy necklace. You've got a deal. (laughs) That candy necklace was gone in about 30 seconds, and she still had that Nintendo for the next two hours. 
was not right. <laughs> the younger sibling knows. Jacob knew. It didn't happen often, but it was happening now. Esau wanted the stew. So Jacob says, okay. Verse 31. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. I mean, I want us to get this picture because we step in here and we think, that's ridiculous. Well, there's no way. That's the birthright, wealth, power, blessing. There's no way you would trade that for stew. But the problem is we do every day. You have no idea what the Lord would do through you if you would surrender your appetites to him. It's at this point in the story that I wish I could just drop in on Esau you know, with a time machine and go back and just drop in there and say, Esau, I need to tell you something. Before you make this decision, you need to understand this because this is huge, huge implications, Esau. You're going to have 12 sons. Those 12 sons are going to go to Egypt. They're going to create a nation, an enslaved nation in Egypt. They become a mighty nation that is going to be feared by all around. And God is going to raise up this man named Moses. That's a weird name. I know Esau, don't dwell on that. This guy named Moses, he's going to raise him up. Moses is not going to know the name of God. God is going to come to Moses in a burning bush, and he's going to tell Moses this plan of freeing your children, Esau, your children, his children, from slavery. And he's going to introduce himself to Moses this way. He's going to say, Moses, I am the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Esau, God is going to introduce himself with your name, your name. Esau, you need to hear this too, because 2,000 years from now, there's going to be a man named Matthew. He's going to be a tax collector. You don't know what that is. That's fine. But he's going to be a tax collector. And he's going to write a book about Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He's going to write a book telling about how God sent Jesus to save all of humanity from sin. And he's going to choose to introduce the Savior of the world by saying, Abraham beget Isaac beget Esau. Esau, you need to get this because God is going to introduce himself with your name. Matthew is going to introduce the Savior of the world with your name. Unless you sell your birthright. And if you do it, your legacy will be changed. And God will introduce himself as the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Matthew will introduce the savior of the world as Abraham begat Isaac who begat Jacob. You have no idea how the Lord would choose to use you if you would surrender your appetites to him. The end of this story. It's very telling, I think, very appropriate. Verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. 
Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The bread was gone. The stew was gone. And his birthright was gone. All because he allowed his appetite to rule him. Graduates, you have no idea how the Lord would use you if you would surrender your appetites to him. Every day, every day you live, there's going to be some appetite that creeps up. There's going to be some appetite that's telling you, take a shortcut here, do this here. If you would surrender that appetite, you have no idea the generational legacy that could happen because you followed Jesus. Church, wherever you are today, I don't know where you are, you have no idea how the Lord would choose to use you in your family, in your work, just out and about. If you would choose to surrender your appetites to him. And we do that very simply by reframing our mind. I mean, just imagine if someone had come into Esau and painted the bigger picture for him. There's no way he would have sold that birthright. And so in our mind, we have to paint that bigger picture that the Lord is calling us to something bigger than this temporary thing that's going to be non-existent in a few moments. Sure, it may meet our need right now. But what's it going to keep us from? What is your appetite today? Is it food? Is it a drink? Is it a pill? Is it a relationship? Is it something that's not really illegal or immoral, but you wouldn't want anybody to know about it? What is your appetite this morning that needs to be surrendered at the feet of Jesus? Because as we reframe our mind, he calls us to repent. To lay that at his feet and allow his grace to flood over us. Because he's provided the way. Paul would write in Colossians, the mystery that's been kept hidden from ages to generations but is now disclosed to the saints is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have Jesus himself inside of us. He would write in Philippians, he would say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not just some verse that says, well, I can climb that mountain because Christ gives me strength. It's about living every day. I can live victoriously because Jesus is inside of me. And when we recognize that and live in light of that and surrender our appetites, you have no idea how the Lord would choose to use you today and for eternity. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for
this morning. I thank you for your word, Father. I thank you for the story of those who have gone before. Father, I thank you that in Esau's life, you chose to restore him. You called him back. It took a while, but you restored him. You you bestowed grace upon him, that this wasn't the end of his story. But Father, I pray that for each person in this room today, that we would understand the power of our appetites, the cravings that try to draw us and pull us away from you. And set us on a course contrary to what you would have. May we be bold enough to repent from those. To surrender them to you. Father, I pray that you would fill us with your grace in that moment. And allow us to live victoriously in the name of Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.